This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Michael Sembalist with the J.P. Morgan Eye on the Market podcast. This particular podcast is the second of four podcasts that we're doing on our annual energy paper. Uh, This one is on the issue of electrification and specifically the issues of transmission and electric vehicles. Uh, The next podcast will be on electrification of home heating through heat pumps. And then the last one will be on our deep dive look into the hydrogen economy or the lack thereof. So let's get started on this concept of electrification. Why is everybody so focused on this as a deep decarbonization uh, uh, agenda item? Uh, Well, it has to do with the fact that if you can electrify something, um, such as converting from an internal combustion engine car to an electric vehicle, and then you follow up by decarbonizing the grid by adding wind, solar, hydro, um, storage, Uh, possibly nuclear, uh, or even, as some people argue, uh, natural gas with carbon capture, which we're very skeptical of, you can then decarbonize that energy use. So just to be clear, first you electrify it, then you decarbonize the grid, and then you've decarbonized your energy use. Sounds very simple. Of course, it is nothing. Uh, It is is not simple at all. Over the last 20 years, the share of electricity as a percentage of total energy use has risen by just 2 to 3% in most countries, which is a very slow rate of change. We have a chart in here showing um, the most large and mid-sized countries uh, use electricity for something like 15 to 20% um, of their overall primary energy consumption, and that those numbers have only risen by 2 to 3% in the last 20 years. Um, and the only countries that are higher than that are places like Iceland and Norway and Sweden and Switzerland, uh, places that are have abundant hydro and geothermal power, or they're very small countries that rely on the outside world. Uh, so remember, a lot of what you read from energy futurists is about this electrified world is a blueprint for a world that doesn't really have a proof of concept yet. So let's get started on this transmission issue. We've been writing about it for a few years. The bottom line is that there is an enormous gap in between the the amount uh, of transmission that we have, uh, transmission capacity measured as gigawatt miles, um, and and what a lot of the new, uh, deep decarbonization plans require. And it's just very hard to build new transmission. Uh, transmission grid of the United States has grown at 2% a year since 1978 and only 1% a year over the last five years. And um, that's nowhere near the robustness of, of a grid that you would need to increase the level of electrification of energy use. And in last year's paper, we covered the saga of this project that was supposed to bring hydropower from Quebec to Massachusetts Um, that was blocked first by New Hampshire and then by Maine. And if the most progressive region of the country can't figure out how to swap natural gas combustion for cheaper and cleaner Canadian hydropower, uh, that's a huge problem. And when I speak to net zero and Green New Deal advocates, 
a lot of them stare off to, into space on this topic rather than confronting the, the state's rights and eminent domain issues head on. And unfortunately, in my opinion, it tells me that they're not really that serious about addressing the real world obstacles, real world obstacles to deeper decarbonization. They, you know, because that's one of the real world issues that has to be confronted. Um, that project called Northern Pass from Quebec to Massachusetts, which has now been permanently scrapped, uh, is not the exception. Transmission projects are being blocked all across the country by landowners and even by conservation groups that, obje- that are objecting to the very electrification that they intensely lobby for when they get interviewed and when they write academic papers. Um, I read this paper from lawyers at the Illinois Environmental Law and Policy Center explaining why they were litigating to block a wind transmission project, and it it was the equivalent of looking at somebody contort themselves into a pretzel. So um, Iowa's blocked projects to bring wind to Illinois and Wisconsin. Arkansas blocked a project from Oklahoma to the southeastern U.S. Missouri blocked projects from Kansas to Indiana. Colorado's blocked projects. Oddly enough, in Florida, Governor DeSantis and the state legislature are one of the few places that passed laws preventing local entities from blocking solar projects and some other renewable projects. How ironic is that? Um, Now, some Republicans blame Democrats for this, and there's a quote in here we have from Pete Stauber, who's a Republican congressman in Minnesota, saying, look, you know, Democrats may now realize that allowing environmental groups to sue over every infrastructure project they didn't like might not have been the best idea. Um, Just as a bit of background, if you look around you, you are benefiting from the application and and widespread use of something called federal eminent domain, which is when the federal government says, look, I understand there may be local objections to this, but this is needed for the greater good, and it's going to happen. That's why we have railroads. That's why we have national parks. That's why we have natural gas pipelines, airports, naval stations, the interstate highway system that Eisenhower built, fiber optic cables. Um, eminent domain was used broadly over the last 100 years to create all of those things. But it's not being used today broadly by the federal government on the transmission issue. And there's a variety of, of legal reasons why that's the case. We described them here. But the bottom line is Congress tried to pass the Energy Policy They passed the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which was supposed to give the federal government more citing authority for these projects. But it got challenged in courts and has been stymied ever since. The other challenge facing the grid is that even when the local communities and environmental groups aren't blocking it, they then have to get connected to the grid itself. And there's a thing called the interconnection queue, um, queue meaning, you know, Q-U-E-U-E, um, uh, where you have to line up and apply to, to be added to the grid itself. And um, that used to be a pretty simple process when generators were adding large nuclear and natural gas plants. But now, hundreds of small renewable projects, uh, solar, solar and storage, wind, are all swarming the queue at the same time. A lot of these um, uh, government and local agencies are understaffed. It's a very inefficient process. It can take you up to four years to finally be told, yes, we're going to approve you, and here's where you're going to slot into and how you're going to connect to the grid and how much it's going to cost you. And uh, we have some data in here showing that something like only 20 to 30% of 
of projects in the interconnection queues reached commercial operation uh, from over the last decade, and the numbers were even a little bit lower for, for wind and solar. So that's the other challenge is that even when people are not objecting to these projects, it's very complicated uh, with the United States grid and the process used to approve projects to get these things added. The amount of solar and wind capacity in the queues in aggregate across the country are many multiples of existing wind and solar capacity. Uh, whether you know what subset of those will eventually be be put into commercial operation, nobody really knows because they have to run the gauntlet of of uh, local landowner and environmental objections, and then they have to go through this interconnection process, which is extremely inefficient. And you know that's that's the challenge about this whole electrification concept, which is a lot of people express support for it because it's a pathway to decarbonization, but then are not willing to sit down and, uh, and, and or sorry, stand up for the things that would be needed to make that happen, which is going to require some combination of consensus building at a national level, um, some cabinet level policies and some congressional policies to make sure that these transmission projects can get built. Um, the gap between the status quo and the idealized version of the transition grid is almost as wide as the idealized perception of carbon sequestration and what's actually happening on the ground now, which is, you know, 0.1% of U.S. and European emissions are sequestered every year. I mean, that, that's the biggest gap between perception and reality, but the, the issues with transmission are pretty close behind. So where does that leave Massachusetts now that Maine and New Hampshire killed their access to low-cost Canadian hydropower? Well, right now, they're having to import electricity from neighboring states, most of which is not very green because it's coming from places where it's based on natural gas. Um, and uh, if they're thinking about offshore wind, um, which is what Massachusetts appears to be doing, that looks like it's going to be expensive. Average wholesale electricity prices in Massachusetts last year were $50 a megawatt hour. And the recent bids for offshore wind in Massachusetts were, you know, 70 to 100. So, you know, almost double. Um, and, and it looks like Massachusetts has a long-term plan for offshore wind adding up to 50% of the state's electricity consumption. Um, we'll see if that happens. But across the eastern seaboard, people are giving up on some of these Canadian hydropower projects and, and looking to offshore wind itself, which is going to be a pretty expensive way to do it. So the bottom line is... Uh, a lot of work is going to have to get done on this transmission issue, uh, which which we consider to be maybe the single largest roadblock in the entire renewable energy transition. I want to spend just a few minutes closing this podcast with discussions about electric vehicles. Um, so the EV, EV sales are ga gathering steam. Um, last year, they were almost 9% of total vehicle sales. That's a big jump from the prior year, where it was like 4 4.5%. Four um, now, to be clear, that's the percentage of that year's sales. EVs still represent just 1% to 2% of the fleet on the road. And remember, today's cars last, you know, av on average 12 years, which is double um, the, the average life of a car, let's say, a long time ago when I was in college. So... That just means that it's going to take a long time for vehicle sales, electric vehicle sales, 
to, to end up having a big impact on the percentage of EVs in the total fleet. Um, anyway, the U.S. trailed a lot of countries. The U.S. was just 4.5% last year EVs. And lower mileage trucks, light trucks and SUVs, are by far the, the most popular cars in the United States. The Ford F-Series, uh, Ram pickup trucks, Chevy Silverado, um, Jeep Grand Cherokee, you know, cars like GMC Sierra, the Toyota Tacoma, those are some of the um, highest selling vehicles in the United States. Most of them have mileage numbers somewhere around 20, 21 miles a gallon. And so one of the topics we get into this year is what should the United States do to try to convince some of these people to, to switch to electric vehicles, assuming that you can try to overcome whatever range anxiety people may have, particularly if they use those cars for work. I mean, if you, if you use your car for work, there's an extra burden because you can't, you can't simply forget to charge it. Like, I can forget to charge my car, and, and I can find other ways of getting to work or doing the things I want to do. But if you use your car for work, you can't, it's much harder to do that. And the U.S. has a population of intense uh, gasoline super users, that they're called. In other words, the top 10% of all the drivers in the United States burn a third of all the gasoline, and more than the gasoline burned by the bottom 60% of all drivers. So you've got a bunch of people that own cars that don't use them very much, and then one-sixth of those people by number burning a third of all the gasoline. Um, obviously, they're more likely to drive pickups and SUVs. They live in rural areas, and they drive a lot. They drive three times more miles than the average driver. And, uh, of course, the... The, the challenge is how do you get those people to switch? Some people will say, well, let's just have higher gasoline taxes. But that's very unlikely for political reasons. Even before the Build Back Better bill ran into trouble you know, with resistance in the Senate, polling showed that the U.S. voters are not really in favor of gasoline taxes uh, when paying for infrastructure or for other renewable energy objectives. And a carbon tax, I think, is even further away. And not only that, at least in Europe, a carbon tax is typically applied to power generation, manufacturing, and aviation, but not to road or maritime transport. So the issue that we look at, and this is really just a, a thought exercise more than anything else, is let, let's assume that um, there's an elderly couple living in Seattle. Um, they own a uh, an energy-efficient 2015 Honda Accord, gets 30 miles a gallon. They get $7,500 um, to switch to a new EV. Um, somebody driving a 20 mile a gallon Toyota Tacoma who drives eight times as much per year in terms of mileage than that couple in Seattle, they get the same $7,500. So one of the things we walk through is uh, maybe it would be better. I mean, think about what a, a gasoline tax would do. A gasoline tax would pose a tax on you to convince you to switch. Well, why not have a structure that, uh, um, an incentive structure that incents you to switch? In other words, pay people per gallon of displaced gasoline rather than per vehicle. Because right now, the way the current structure works, that, that couple in Seattle is getting something like 70 to $75 a gallon for every, uh, uh, for, ev for every gasoline a gallon gasoline that is displaced, whereas the Toyota Tacoma driver is only getting $6 a gallon. So obviously this, this $7,500 per vehicle is something that is, is, uh, 
I don't think maximized in terms of incentivizing switching by the people that the United States apparently has the greatest incentive to to convince to switch with the people that are consuming the, most of the gasoline. So anyway, we'll see if anything happens there. Um, the last quick topic for today is you may have seen that metals prices are going up a lot and the, the, there are some implications here for battery costs for electric vehicles and specifically batteries that use cobalt, um, nickel, and aluminum because those are the ones where those, their prices have surged uh, as inventory levels have collapsed relative to demand. It turns out not every lithium-ion battery uh, in an EV is the same. There's, there's three main different types. Some of them use uh, a decent amount of nickel and cobalt, and some of them, particularly some of the Teslas and some of the Chinese ones, don't use them and are simply reliant on lithium, copper, steel, and iron. Um, those battery costs haven't been affected as much, maybe by you know four or five hundred dollars. But the uh, the other electric battery costs, based on our estimates, have gone up anywhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand dollars um, since the beginning of two thousand and twenty. And um, there may be some sticker shock coming for the EVs that are reliant on nickel and cobalt. Now you can offset part of that by the fact that if the current gap between gasoline and electricity costs um, is sustained, you'll, your payback period will, will benefit, so you can offset part of that price increase but through fuel savings. But there are some issues here, and um, the basically the EV battery supply chain, in the long run, we could see shortages that look and feel like the current semiconductor shortage um, 90% of the battery supply chain that people are forecasting for 2030 doesn't really exist yet. And so uh, the path to higher EV shares may not be that easy. And the path to higher EVs over the next three to five years may not be as quick as the one we've seen over the last two when there were fewer of these uh, metal metals supply chain issues getting in the way. So that's um, that's enough for this week. Um, tune in next week and we'll have a discussion about how people eat their homes. Thank you very much. Bye. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.